I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone, it's time for... The Connor and Smith Show! Thank you, Places. Hey, so I, uh... Before our guest, Marsha Milgram Dodge, uh, director of the Broadway revival of Ragtime, amongst many other things, including Disney's Encore show. Uh, she does a couple episodes on there. Before we have her on, we always uh, open our show with a craft attempt. Now, I don't know if anybody knows this about me, but I used to make candles, and I got a candle-making kit over the winter that I thought we could try out. And now it's soy wax, and I used to use regular, so I... I'm not used to working with this, um, but it's a cute little kit here. It uh, basically has comes with a little pitcher. You put the color and the uh, soy wax granules in, and then you put that in a pot with a low, little amount of water and boil it and melt the wax inside the pitcher. Um, I've added green grass candle scent, which is our favorite and have poured them. Now you take, they come with these little tins and you take the wick and place it in the middle of the tin. Then you pour all the wax in. It almost looks like it comes ready for you to like sell and give away as a gift. It's definitely not like a hobby. It comes with like a little sticker that you put on the candle that says, you know, trim your wick and be careful to blow out your candle. <clears throat> so this total from uh, me starting the process to right here where we are now took 15 minutes to do two candles. They're tiny candles. They're not like big tall things. They're little like uh, they come in a little votive can. But they should be ready to light by the end of this podcast. So we will try them out later on. But see how long it takes for them to cool. Yes, and they should be done by the time we're done with uh, the interview with Marsha. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, we just need to take a real quick break. We will be back right after this. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm here with Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi, Marsha. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to hear both of you. Well, we're going to have our own uh, Oscar party. I know. I was going to (laughs) say, yeah, we're having our little side Oscar event. (laughs) So, Marsha, wow, uh, where to begin? So we met, gosh. We met doing one of the concerts at the Kennedy Center, right? Yeah, I'm, I met you before that. I auditioned for a show that um, was playing at the Kennedy Center, some show that has like a Broadway 12th anniversary tonight. <laughs> Did I, you? Oh, you auditioned for Ragtime. Yes, today's a very special day. And that's the first time I ever talked to you. And... Yeah. I had the time for some other show had my hair dyed blonde mm. and you looked at me and you said, are you always this brassy looking? 
Yes, Tony and I came to New York from Michigan and we called ourselves the Blunts. <laughs> and so, yeah. I want to see that TV show. <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> I am sort of known for sort of being blunt. Um, I love it. <laughs> I was probably trying to ingratiate myself to you in some strange way. So, well, um, what's funny is we looked exactly alike almost at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was it. It was like, I don't, too many blondes in the room. Yeah, I, I got to be the one. Blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's so you're hilarious. from Michigan? Yeah, I'm from Detroit. And did you go to school in Michigan? I uh, did. I went to the University of Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan in the 70s of the 1900s, <laughs> the 1970s, and um, was, dan was there in the dance department and theater department. They didn't have musical theater back then. They had no musical theater training. So I sort of um, figured out a way to get credits for doing musicals. Um, but I was in school in the mid 70s and Madonna Louise Ciccone was in one of my dance classes. Shut up. Yeah. Well, yeah, we studied modern together. So you may, let's see, our, what was it, our, the teacher that came from Michigan to our school, Shenandoah, was it uh, Helm? Well, Erica Helm, but then there was the other one. Oh, I don't remember her name. But yeah, yeah. but you're like seriously younger than me. So Yeah, but she you, this is this was a dance teacher of Madonna's at Michigan. And Helm? she came to, or Gay no. De, well, Gay DeLang, Vera Embry, and Elizabeth Bergman were the three major women. It was Bergman. It was female Bergman. for Elizabeth Bergman. Yeah. And she moved, she left Michigan. And ended up um, running the dance program in Harvard for a while. And we reconnected. I'm about to post all this on my social media. Um, we reconnected. I was opening a production of Ain't Misbehaving at the Huntington Theater. And they said they were having this big dinner thing, fundraiser for the theater. And it timed out that it was our opening night. So... She, they said, bring a, bring a date. And my husband was in, was in New York. So I said, I'm going to reach out to Elizabeth Bergman. I haven't seen her in 30 years. And lo and behold, she was my date that night. She came. Wow. It was crazy. It was wonderful. She was one of the teachers in the modern dance world that didn't really know what musicals were. And mm -hmm. so I in my sort of hubris and wisdom at age, you know, 18, 19, 20, I was telling them, everyone in the dance department, what musical theater was. They didn't even know what it was. They never went to musicals on campus or anything. They were busy in their, you know, uh, Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, Eric Horton world of modern dance. And I showed up and said, wait, I'm choreographing. I should get the credits in the dance department. Interesting. Yeah. So I was very uh, tenacious that way. Um, it's funny. Whenever I see someone from Michigan, either when I was performing as a cast member or as a director or whatever, I know that they're going to be good. No, hands down. Oh, really? From U of M? From the training? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, program, the program was pretty fabulous when I was there as far as acting goes. They had two major theaters that we worked in. We opened the Power Center in Ann Arbor, which was this huge performing arts center 
one of the first of the of its kind. And I saw the national tour of a little night music there. And it was mind blowing. And then, you know, six months later, I was doing guys and dolls on that stage. So the idea that we were actually sharing, you know, that theater, what I refer to as the temple, you know, that sacred space with real professional actors and doing that are doing Broadway national tours. And we were, you know, little smarty pants doing guys and dolls in junior year of college. What do I know? What do we know? Nothing. But we were in the same space. And there was something kind of magical and remarkable about that. Was your, so was, would you say your sphere, um, your aim was to be a performer or to be a choreographer first? First, I wanted to be a choreographer. Like when I, when I, I mean, I danced from the time I was three. I, my story is like Mike's in a chorus line because I went to dance class with my sister Paula and then came home and did the combination. And my mother said, ah, I think you need to take dance classes. <laughs> and I was, you know, two years younger than her. So I was the I can do that kid. Um, and then I started taking dance class. And then when I graduated high school, I had done recitals and, you know, we did recitals at the Masonic Temple in Detroit in one of their smaller theaters. And um, I went to Michigan and I did a, a fall semester of liberal arts and I called my parents and said, I can't do this. I have to be dancing. I have to get in the dance department. And my father was like, what? Yeah, I'm not paying for college for you to dance. <laughs> so I had to like figure it out, you know, and take all the academics and did a lot of, you know, extracurricular choreographing, anything I can get my hands on, and then fell into the student-run organization called Musket. And Musket is where I found my family, you know, where I did work with my then-boyfriend, now-husband, Tony, my dear friend, Robert Bianco, who uh, lives in, in D.C., and he ended up becoming a lawyer and then writing for USA Today. He was our producer. And then my dear friend Larry Iser was my music director. And then he went to law school. They were all really smart. They got real, you know, they got real uh, dependable degrees. Um, and then he was our music director and did all, you know, conducted all the shows. And so these were our, these were our buddies and these were who we hung out with and figured out how to make theater and 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 we all loved everything. And Andy Zerman, who was a, a casting director in New York, started out writing for the local, you know, student paper in Ann Arbor. And he used to review me. And then Tony and I were co-directing the music man and said, we should get Andy to be our stage manager. It'll guarantee us that we always get good reviews. And so, he, and so we did. And he became our stage manager and joined our little um, group and, um, you know, moved to New York. And he started casting for Johnson Liff and then became, then his name got added to the masthead. So, you know, it was like really exciting. Eric Riley was in the sophomore musical that I directed, that I choreographed rather. And it was Damn Yankees and he played um, Applegate. And um, he went on to stand by for Andre to Shields and Ain't Misbehaving and then stars Papa Gay in Once on This Island. So it was like a really exciting time to find theater and 
make it my life's work. It was, I had no idea going, enrolling at Michigan that that's what was going to happen. And now kids who are 10 years old know that that's what they're going to do. You know, it's very Mm -hmm. different. Just to let you know, Matt has confirmed it was Elizabeth Bergman. She did teach at Shenandoah University. Wow. um, And she was there when we were. Cool. Um, Back with the Flintstones. Yeah, in the 90s. Uh, And she wrote a a book uh, called Uh Connecting to Creativity. um, And that followed her stint at Shenandoah University. So there you go. We're all connected. We are all connected. Because I remember her, of course... You know, no, no, no. We are not connected. I was not allowed. I didn't Elizabeth take no. Bergman's class. No, no. Oh, she, really? She taught in the dance department. We might have taken classes in the dance department, but not from her. No, I took for like three weeks her eight a.m. Ba- ballet class until she pulled me aside and said, "I think you should go to another ballet class." <laughs> because my turnout had turned back in. Oh dear. She sent you over to the jazz teacher, right? Right. right. <laughs> oh man! Basic ballet, yay. yeah. No, ser- serious dance um, pedagogy from Elizabeth Bergman and Gay DeLang and Vera Embry, who were, you know, the three formidable women in my life who really helped shape my movement and understand, you know, how to do composition and things like that. Do you use that same composition when directing? You know, I think it's subconscious in a way. You know, I think I started dancing so early that I learned so many patterns and combinations. And, um, you know, I watched all the recitals and and I saw how dances built, you know, how they built. But, you know, as a as a choreographer, my opportunities have always, I would say, 90% have been revivals. So the dance arrangements are structured and I follow that structure right right you know a a profound experience in my career was doing on the town at arena stage that was like a major um I don't know I guess notch on my learning curve or something it was Doug Wager hired me it was 1989 he had never seen my work he had heard about me and I met with him and I walked through the space. I went down to DC and I walked the arena space with him, the, the, um, the big theater in the round and he hired me. And then I went home and like went, Oh shit, I got a choreograph on the town with music by Leonard Bernstein. It was like, wow you know yeah. it was kind of like oh god yeah and isn't, I had, isn't that the amazing like end of act one or beginning of act two like Times square ballet that's really a funky and cool yeah well all it says in the script is Times square ballet yeah that's it it's not there's no narrative there's nothing there's nothing there's no stage directions the other ballets all have stage directions and narratives but not Times square ballet yeah very interesting so out of you know from scratch so i pulled I used every technique in my body that was still there. You know what I mean? So I used as I used everything to, to choreograph and, and I've always choreographed from a behavior and character point of view. So, um, I mean, most of my characters are not going to do 30 fuete turns. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? They're always going to be in service to, uh, pursuing an objective and, 
and storytelling and narrative. So that was an amazing opportunity and frightening challenge, um, getting that job and learning how to really listen to Bernstein's music and figure out how to tell stories as that is my partner was really challenging and it was thrilling and exciting and terrifying and I cried a lot and screamed a lot and spent a lot of time in the bowels of the old arena stage rehearsal studio next to the garage you know the one with the fumes. Well, yeah. that's right yeah I'm... I think I choreographed that show on fumes literally like yeah. I was like <laughs> Um, but Did, I would how, be in the studio at midnight. I would, I would, it was a 24 seven undertaking and it was profoundly, um, responsible for helping me chart my sort of methodology as a creative stager and choreographer. How soon after that came, uh, Merrily We Roll Along? Soon. Because once I worked with Doug and we had done that, um, the next thing we did was Merrily. And that was Stephen Sondheim in, you know, coming to see us and check in on us, carrying his rhyming dictionary. And George Firth was in residence. And the cast was ridiculously talented. It was Victor Garber. David Garrison and um, Becky Ann Baker. They were Frank and Charlie and Mary. Gussie was Mary Gordon Murray. Beth was the miracle that was Marin Maisie. Wow. Um, and then we had in the ensemble, we had um, Tom Hewitt and Ruth Williamson and Tom Sesma and huh? uh Eric Devine. I mean, we had these like Broadway players in our ensemble. Right. And, um, and then we had this unfortunate accident, which was there was this ice storm in New York and Doug Wager um, got injured, slipped on some black ice at Playwrights Horizons and ended up in the hospital. So we started rehearsal in DC with me and the company staging all the numbers and Doug was in a hospital in New York City. So, you know, that's not the best way to um, launch a major revival with living authors. Now, for those who are listening that maybe aren't completely in, in the Sondheim world, this is the musical that is told backwards. Correct. Now, what, what is it about this show? First of all, it's an amazing story. There's such an attraction to it, but yet there's this elephant in the room that it sort of kind of doesn't, always work well it it is um one of the greatest scores i think he have you seen wrote. the movie what uh, oh what is lonnie's the, the, movie lonnie's no the uh is it the worst best yeah lonnie thing? price who was yes. the original charlie made the film yeah oh it's fantastic oh gosh um it's fantastic um it's it's i saw i i saw the uh closing night on broadway wow the original production and um, everyone was crying. Everybody on stage, everybody in the audience, everybody was crying. It was just like, what happened? And so, um, you know, we worked really hard and Doug is quite a good dramaturg. And we went back to this, the show had between Broadway and our production at arena, which was 91 
had a production at La Jolla or Old Globe, one of the big California theaters. And I think it was Old Globe. And James Lapine started working on it with Sondheim. And somehow it ended up, you know, in the hands of Doug Wager and not with Lapine. So we went, we had George Firth, who the original author. So um, it was, it had gone, you know, a lot of people were, you know, playing around with it. And then it, a lot of it boiled down to, do you do the, the reunion at the beginning in the high school? Do you see, sing the anthem? Do right. you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's always like been tricky and structuring to take us back. Um, but I honestly think that the show should be performed by a young cast. I've done it now twice in colleges and uh, at NYU and at um, SUNY um, Buffalo. And that first act done by adults is really good, but the second act done by adults is tricky. And in the reverse, the first act done by kids is tricky because they're supposed to be all grown up. The second act is like a dream with the right. cast. Then the so whole show it's complicated. Lands. I think personally that it should be done with a young cast and I think it should it I think that they're acting as if they are their parents in the first act. Ah, compromise. You know what there I mean that it's like them putting on this is the, look how stupid the grown-ups are. Right. Because the conflicts are really palpable as far as friendship goes and what what constitutes a betrayal of friendship and stuff like that but but the inciting incident of a of a character a young woman getting iodine in her eyes is a little hard to fathom you know what i mean it's just right. it's hard um but anyway i had one of the most ex exquisite times in my career on something so sort of messy and complicated and unfortunately unsuccessful in terms of getting us to move to New York and becoming the definitive revival. Um, but it gave me the chance to sit with Steve and get notes directly from him. And don't tell anybody, but I recorded a lot of those note sessions on good old fashioned VHS. So I'm, I'm waiting to translate them into digital and take a look at them and see, you know, what I got. Oh, how cool. Be really that? cool. Did he really have a rhyming dictionary? Yeah. He carried the English, the, the Oxford edition. Wow. And don't, I, God, I want to say, and maybe it's not fit for airtime, so you can also say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but don't you have some kind of funny or interesting story about working on that show with Sondheim. I don't know if it was because you're the only woman I did, in the room. I, no, I did. I told the story. I did a, a little, um, uh, you know, right when the pandemic started, I did a, a, an event for Porchlight Theater in Chicago with Lonnie Price and Chris Jones, the local critic. And we, it was a series devoted to Sondheim. So I did tell the story. I can tell it. So, you know, we had full costume scenery, everything. It was the whole nine yards. We were in the Krieger Theater for Merrily We Roll Along at Arena. And Victor was always running off stage and changing his clothes and coming back half dressed. And it was like, you know, we were in tech and it was kind of crazy. And so I seized an opportunity very, 
smarty pants, young choreographer, hadn't, you know, really learned the definition of the word prudent. But I took Sondheim, I like caught his eye at one moment and I seized the moment and I said, what if Frank never left the stage and he never changed his clothes and he was in the same tuxedo that he was in the first scene on the, in the last scene on the rooftop and that this whole event is in a blink of an eye, you know, in this moment that he's like going through his time as a, you know, his whole life in the blink of an eye and he finds himself on the rooftop. And Sondheim took his hands, I'm illustrating, you can't see me, took his hands, put them over his eyes and bent his head down <laughs> and was silent for what seemed like, you know, an eternity, probably, you know, 15 seconds or whatever. And then sat up and said, Marsha, either that's the most brilliant idea I've ever heard or it's like when Hal Prince said to me, I'm putting them in T-shirts with their names on them. <laughs> and so it was kind of a beautiful way to say, shut up, Marsha. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like he listened, he processed it. And then he said, you're not the director and you should keep your mouth shut. <laughs> um, but he you... was lovely to me. He really was. He was very kind. And I'll never forget when we did our sort of, you know, studio run through for him. And that was the first time he saw it all put together. He said to me, opening doors is brilliant. Now we have to talk about all the other numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, okay, well, I got one, you know. So. Um, I have to, full disclosure, our pug Byron is like, he loves when we talk to people, but he gets really close to where we are and you can hear him snarfling in the background. Oh, I'm, I so, don't hear him. So it's okay. I, I, well, me. Okay, good. I hope, I just don't want you to think one of us is asleep. It's the dog. <laughs> it's okay. Peter Marks listening to our conversation. Oh my gosh. Hi, Peter. <laughs> um, so, so what, at what point did directing start to come into focus for you? Um, it's really interesting because I was choreographing and I kind of landed in the regional theaters just when they all started doing musicals. So from um, St. Louis Rep to Arena Stage to Stage West to La Jolla Playhouse to Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, I was like really getting ensconced. And um, I was actually working on a, a musical version of Elmer Gantry that played in La Jolla before it played at the Ford's Theater. Um, and I was with Des Mackinoff and I got a call to do an Ain't Misbehaven to direct and choreograph um, in Virginia. And that really was thrilling for me because um, I had choreographed Off-Broadway with Richard Maltby Jr. We did Closer Than Ever. And I had, you know, been working with Doug at Arena and and uh, uh, some really good directors regionally at Cincinnati and St. Louis. And so to get the opportunity to work on essentially a musical review, you know, when you start to think, you go, why do you need a director and a choreographer? But it's interesting because it forced me in a really great way to understand what the conception process was. That was never usually on me. It was on me to conceive numbers and to make sure they work within the greater 
you know, vision of the director, but it wasn't on me to ever conceive of anything. So doing Ain't Misbehaving was really my first opportunity. I had only directed one play before that. Um, I did The Odd Couple. And, uh, and then after Ain't, I got to do, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but Goodspeed was doing On the Town and um, they lost their director. And I got a call saying, can you come in and replace and do it in two weeks? You know, and oh, in wow. those days I was getting four to six weeks of rehearsal. I mean, I don't get that anymore. But when I did On the Town at Arena, I had six weeks of rehearsal. Wow. Um, so I ended up taking that job and having to step up and be the director of a huge musical. Whereas in the, you know, in the past I was a partner, but I wasn't in charge of the whole thing. So those two shows, I would say, were the, were the keys for me. The Good Speed on the Town and the Virginia Stage Ain't. Um, and then I was hooked. And it was really at the urging of my husband. Tony would say, you know, you think like a director, you should direct. Like your staging is behavior driven, narrative driven. It's all, you know, coming from the right place. So. Now, as a, as a director, if anyone's listening that isn't, um, do you get final say on this list of, of, of uh, departments? Do you have final say on all props, all costumes, all staging, casting? Uh, casting? When, when, what lane do you not have as a director? I mean, can you say, look, this apple is entirely too red. It looks like it's a... Yeah. Um, yeah. Pomegranate or whatever. Yeah. The thing is, we get to make all those decisions so that if it's successful, we get all the applause. And if it's uh, bad, we get all the blame. So that's the that's the trade off. Mm. You take all that responsibility. And yes, it is your decision. And it depends on the theater. I mean, some artistic directors are very hands off and say, invite me when you want me to look at something. They've done their due diligence. They've hired you and they trust you to do what you promised to do. Other, other artistic directors or producers, I would say in commercial theater, it's less autonomous. In commercial theater, there's more people um, having a say um, in decisions. But in regional theater, in the, in the nonprofit, in the um, uh, theaters like Arena and um, St. Louis Rep and Cincinnati Playhouse, Cleveland Playhouse, all those theaters, all those great regionals. The artistic directors do exhaustive, you know, research on you before they give you the job. Once they give you the job, they pretty much leave you alone. And then you invite them. You're like, I want their notes. You know, right. if I'm directing and choreographing, I don't really have a partner to bounce things off of until I get into tech and my designers come back. But when we're teching and if something isn't working, it's great to have that set of eyes to come in and help. But yes, we've made all those decisions. And I am a huge planner. I don't start anything without having a plan A for staging, for everything. Speaking of ragtime, and I, I know we got a lot to talk about with ragtime because, of course, just a beautiful, um, amazing experience in production. But like, what is the process for uh, tran transferring 101 from like one space to another space? Do you completely kind of have to go back and reimagine other 
uh, staging other ideas for how that space works? Well, you know, for me, the Kennedy Center was it. So we didn't plan beyond that. And right. when all of that real stuff started happening, when all those, pretty, you know, when you get a, an email saying so-and-so's in the house tonight and that started happening and it became real, that was, you know, unbelievable. And then we started looking at Broadway theaters and that was like surreal on some level because these are all theaters that I have enjoyed you know, numerous performances in, and I'm standing on stage at the St. James Theater, and we're looking around, Derek McLean and I, going, our set's not going to fit in here. So we had to really, we had to, you know, and then the, we looked at, I think, one other theater besides that before we went to the Neil Simon, and then the Neil Simon, we, it mostly fit, but we couldn't literally take the set from the Kennedy Center, which is like doing a show in a football field, right. um, and take it to any Broadway theater. It had to be rebuilt. It had to be started over. So when we rebuilt it for the Neil Simon, we had to mechanize the upper level, which on some level broke my heart because what I loved about the set was that it was stationary and that actors navigated up and down but that nothing moved you right. know um there was no tech for that but on broadway we had to uh, mechanize the bridge because we had some sightline issues with the balcony so that if somebody was standing on the bridge their head was cut off so we had to make sure the bridge could lower to a level that the upper balcony could see everybody and then raise up out of the way so it wasn't causing any sightline issues so that became dangerous. You know, we had to make sure that everything was locked before the bridge went up. And I, had to, you know, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. I mean, it was just, you know, I had to factor in those, you know, locking gates and unlocking gates and things like that. But no, it was a pretty straight transfer in that regard because we maintained the integrity of the show. The backstage at the Neil Simon was just jammed. I mean, there between the staircase and the car and the piano. There's just nowhere to move back there, and there's no stage right. So when Houdini was being hooked up to fly right at the beginning, they Jonathan was like in this corner by the proscenium that only he could fit in. And then you had the flying guys like hooking him up and everything, and all that equipment was like crammed in there. So those, you know, beautiful Broadway theaters I hope during this time of shutdown that they've taken some care and done some refurbishing back there because it's tight. Uh, we really first met doing these gala things at the <laughs> Kennedy Center. And the first of which was My Fair Lady. Let's talk about the cast of that. First of all, Michael York. I know. Um, Michael York was Pickering. Jonathan Price was playing Higgins. Laura Michelle Kelly was Eliza. And they both played those roles in London, but never with each other. Um, so that was interesting. And Greg Jabara came and did Doolittle. And Flo Lacey was Mrs. Pierce. And Max <laughs> Von Essen was Freddie. It was just a love fest. And then Michael Kaiser and I were like, you know, on the phone every day trying to cast everybody. And Jim Moore, of course, our music director, conductor. And um, 
I somehow Cloris Leachman's name came up and I was like, oh my gosh, I want Cloris Leachman to play Mrs. Higgins. And we got her. And she was we sure did a character. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Well, I knew Jonathan was excited because Jonathan fell in love with her from watching um, you know, the Bogdanovich movie where she was the the MILF, right? She mm-hmm. in Last Picture Show. Mm-hmm. She was um well, she wasn't really a MILF. That's probably a bad description, but she was the older woman, right? In that mm-hmm. and Jonathan had a little crush on her. But then you were there the day Cloris arrived, right? Steve? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. So Cloris Leachman, we had rehearsed for two days. This is five days of rehearsal. And then we're meeting the orchestra and then we're doing the performance. I mean, it's a one-off, right? And we'd been working for a couple of days. And Cloris came in carrying like a, um, what are those things called? A cone that you put out on the street when you're like blocking traffic. Because yes. someone had just mopped the floor out there. Yeah. So she picked up the cone, she walked in the room, she laid down on the chaise. We had this chaise for the study, for Higgins' study on stage right. She plopped down and pretended she was sleeping. We all kind of hovered around her. And then she sat up, handed me the cone, I think, and then walked over to the piano and started playing Rhapsody in Blue, like flawlessly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then ended with a little Scott Joplin and then looked at us with this little devilish grin on her face. And it was like the most wacky, wonderful, one of a kind, unique, only in the theater. We moment. were all looking at each other like, what's going on? Should I let it continue? Should we, we have zero time to do all this as it is. Oh, I know. It seemed like it, take, it took an hour. You but know, you didn't like, want to interrupt it. We didn't either. want to interrupt her. And we, at the same time, it was like kind of watching a car crash. You know, it was like, what is happening? And then, you know, we introduced her around and then we started to work and she kept wanting to do all the shtick. And she finally looked at me and she said, why did you cast me as Mrs. Higgins? And I said, I thought anyone who could play Frau Blucher could play Mrs. Higgins. Like I looked right back at her, like serious, like said that. And she burst out laughing and I started laughing and she said, I like you. <laughs> and then we were like best friends and she wept in my arms, you know, uh, after the performance. Wow. I did not know Thanked that. me, thanked me, said it was the most amazing, you know, this was what, how many years ago, Stephen? What was it? 2013? Yeah. Yeah. And she just died this year. So she was, you know, she was getting on there. Yeah, I, I, I just I remember that she danced with me and Matthew at the like cast party. Um, and took we have a photo with her. Uh, do you remember the cookie tray and her wanting to keep taking cookies? <laughs> yes. Well, I had this piece of business that I wanted to do with Jonathan, where Eliza kept popping uh, cookies into his mouth during um, uh, "Without You." Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And Jonathan, you know, he's played the part. He's got an Oscar nomination, two Tony Awards. And here me, here I am going, can she shove cookies in your face? You know, <laughs> so um, he did it for a little while and it was really funny, but she was getting the laugh. And so then he told me to stop like he wasn't going to do it anymore. But no, um, 
Cloris, lo- Cloris just wanted to eat the cookies, and I'm like, they're for company. You're you're the great hostess. Just put the cookies out. You're not eating the cookies. At one point, you were following behind her, like <laughs> putting the cookies back, and it was like just that oh, could have been a comedy be sketch. Oh, I wish we had recorded that. Oh my god. Well, I know just from going and seeing these productions at the Candy Center, like, first of all, when you arrive at the Candy Center, you already feel like you're on the top of the theater mountain in Washington because everything is so grand. Right. But then watching these, was was it their uh, gala every year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, My Fair Lady was a gala. And then for Michael's uh, farewell, he wanted Camelot. Yeah. And so we did Camelot as part of the gala. We never got to do our, our trilogy and do uh, Brigadoon. Oh, that would have been great. Then we would have done all the Lerner and Lowe's. Right? It, always, it always felt like in sports, there's always like the all-star team. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It always felt like you were showing up and you weren't only seeing something amazing, but you were seeing the all-star team. That's a great description, man. I love that. Yeah, that's how I felt. I felt so privileged. I felt so lucky that I was in there. I was in those sort of hallowed walls. Right. And, you know, with the Kennedy, you know, truths emblazoned on the walls and and it was just run so first class. Everything was, you know, everything was done with such great respect for the craft and for the people who do it. So. Me and Steven still talk about those evenings like very, very frequently about for some reason they were always just magical from beginning to the end. Yeah. Well, as I say, well, well organized. We were prepared. You got a stage. How many people? It's like a, it was like an ensemble of 12 or 15, 16 and 10 principals and five days of rehearsal. Insane. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember when you said to the whole company, um, like right right before opening night, you said, please don't tell anyone that we did this because this is all they will want in the future. Five oh, days rehearsal. I know. And then, you know, we did it again. And uh, we did it again. And then I did a Children of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I did that one really fast. And we had a chorus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was supposed to do that, but then couldn't because something else happened. I can't remember. Oh, I was well, supposed were, to do that. Yeah, you were on the hire these guys list. Right, right, you right. Know, these are the best locals, and you're more than the best locals. You guys are really talented. So it wasn't. I never felt like I was, you know, forced into anything I didn't want. So I always was appreciative of the community that um, I was stepping into. I mean, I was the outsider. You guys were the, you guys were the insiders. Well, I felt like I had the inside track when I found out you were directing 110 in the Shade. That's for yeah. sure. at Ford's Theater, which is another one of my like home theaters. I know. Which is also another theater in Washington you go to and you feel like, oh, this is a real theater. Mm-hmm. Well, that one's really, you do get goosebumps the first time you walk in there. Yeah. You know, one ten in the shade, which I was really excited to be a part of because I had the weird perspective of playing the younger brother, and then I moved to the middle brother. Yeah, so Marcia and I joke that you know, pretty soon, about you know, ten fifteen years, we're gonna got to do it again. I got to be pop. So. There you go, and the yeah. trilogy. Yeah, I think it's a great idea.
that was a great production. Um, it turned out really good, didn't it? I was really proud of it. I, I, um, it was so foreign to me. It wasn't one of the, you know, it wasn't sort of on my, uh, quote unquote bucket list necessarily, but every show that I end up getting that I didn't expect to know or do becomes my favorite. So it was, and working with Tracy in that role and then getting Tom Jones said, said to us that she was his favorite Lizzie of all the Lizzie's he ever saw. Wow. And that she really personified our, uh, and Richard Nash's, um, inspiration for the role, which was his sister. Mm -hmm. So it was like, Oh, that was just, you know, over the moon thrilling. Yeah. Um, and Ben was so, freaking crazy wonderful and this crazy and Kevin, take on that i role. know i know he was Love- like jazz that's yeah. how i did that's how i described him the first time i saw him after he came into the audition and left i went that man is like jazz yeah i didn't know what was gonna happen it was like a it was like an improv i also love the 50s reset of it yeah that felt really cool and that and that set michael said and um, our beautiful costumes and lighting, everything was like really cool and spare and really put the focus on the people and gave it an interesting context in that sort of repressed uh, post, you know, that Eisenhower era woman type woman. And also so. kind of the 50s where, you know, rock and roll is entering. And so there's a danger kind yeah. of in the societal thread of like, things to be afraid of that are coming in from the outside, big yeah. things, you know. Well, so- he was definitely a very um, threatening. I loved that scene, the rain scene, when he was like jumping on the picnic table and your face. And Yeah. I yeah. wasn't sure if he wanted to make love to you or to Lizzie. Like, Me I either. Was like, what is happening? <laughs> it's like, yeah. So um, that was fun. So I don't, I promised I wouldn't take too much uh, of your time up. I just want to get to the Disney plus of it all. The okay. encores. Yeah. Okay. So you did Ragtime, and you also did Annie, correct? Correct. I did Annie first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had prior experience staging things in a week. Um, <laughs> so that's why you were tapped. I'm sure. <laughs> so tell us about like how that came to be. And like, this this program, for those who don't know, Encores on Disney Plus is one of the most fascinating and fantastic programs to take. It takes um, former high school, you know, musical casts and reunites them and they have to stage the show in like a week. And sometimes the results are better than others. Um, yeah. Do you want to take it from there? Sure. It's it's got, you know, it's high school. If you've ever done a high school musical or seen a high school musical, it's for you. Uh, and even if it, it, it's just one of the most heartwarming series I've ever been involved in, like each episode. Um, and I was called out of the blue by Coy Middlebrook. And he said, I'm supposed to direct this. We did a pilot. We just got picked up. I'm planning 12 episodes. And our first one is Annie. And we were at this point in the process. Can you join us? And this was literally a month out. So I was like, yeah, I'm free that week. And like, perfect. You're coming out to California. 
literally on a Sunday, meet the cast on Monday, wire up and do the show on Friday. It was like insane. So, um, and I didn't know anything. I watched the pilot and I had a sort of general idea and I was working with a choreographer and a music director who had done the pilot or at least had been in the trenches a little bit with it. So, you know, it's five days of rehearsal, but at the Kennedy Center, you just said it's A plus talent. So this is five days of rehearsal with amateurs and people who aren't doing this for their life's work. So, and they haven't, some of them haven't done it since high school and it's been 20 years. So, and it's a reality series. I mean, the first and foremost, it's a reality series. So they're interested in the dynamics, the relationships, who was dating who, who broke up with who, what are you doing now? What's your life like? So I literally, I would say on the clock, if you say five days of rehearsal, I would say I maybe had eight hours. Oh my gosh. I think I probably had about three good hours a day. Wow. A focused rehearsal. Now, granted, we did the short versions. We did the juniors. Ah. Although I'm saying we did the juniors. There is no ragtime junior. I made it, I cut it down while I was at the Muni doing Cinderella with um, a a giant musical at the Muni, 12,000 seats, Forest Park, St. Louis. At night, I'm redlining ragtime. Now you try to cut ragtime, forget about it. It's ridiculous. It's, you know, how do you cut it? How do you do the opening number and cut it? So I got it down to 47 pages, thank you very much. And we shot, and I knew that, because I had done Annie, I knew that I couldn't do ragtime with like scenery. I was like, nope, we're not doing scenery. We're going to do a Kennedy Center unit set. Honestly, I took sort of the structure that I used for um, Children of Eden because I put the orchestra on stage with which solves a lot of issues when you're staging something fast because at least they're all watching the orchestra. Um, And I created this little, you know, sort of bleacher section and this little platform section, and that's how we did it. And um, we had some things fly in, some silhouette stuff that was kind of pretty. And then the other thing is that because they all did it in high school, they want you to use some of the stuff that they did in high school. So the death of Sarah, which I have a very, you know, I've, I've got ragtime in my DNA now, right? So I like to tell the story a certain way. They wanted me to do it with this kind of sheet and shadow and so at some point you just say okay surrender Dorothy you're like (laughs) whatever you want I'll do whatever you want so that's you know so it's a combination of having a big idea knowing how to execute it knowing how to teach fast I took Josh Walden with me and you know he taught the the choreography he was the choreographer on this event and you know I think I had Sarah in rehearsal for about 30 minutes Wow. Because she had a real job. She's not in theater. She works for her family business and she was never at rehearsal. And I literally am on camera, I think, in the episode as Sarah in Wheels of a Dream. Correct. That's right. Okay. And the woman who was voicing it for us that day had played Sarah at the Pasadena Playhouse. (laughs) So the amazing thing about Encore was they gave me eight professionals who were the ensemble. So the professionals on stage were the ensemble and the amateurs were the principals. Oh, wow. 
But then I, we could have choral sound. We could have some really solid acting, support acting. But I did love them. You know what I mean? Ultimately, I fell in love with every single one of them because they were shot out of a cannon. If I was shot out of a cannon, imagine how they felt, you know? And I did love you riding in on the swing. <laughs> I know. That was and, fun. I have to admit, that was fun. And there is something so universal that everyone who's watching can see themselves on that stage because the high school musical, as we know, is such a big part of everyone's high school. It's huge. Yeah. It's really huge. And I had the drama teachers in both of my shows. The first one um, was Miss Tapu- uh, Puma, I think her name was. And she, I wrangled her to be in the show. And so she played like one of the uh, house servants at, at, at Annie. And then the drama teacher for Ragtime, I made younger brother because I had nobody to play younger brother. Oh, so wow. I was like, you're going to be younger brother. And also take this little boy line. <laughs> it was sort of like, so he, um, he, he stepped in too. So it was really, I mean, it's a, it's in a really amazing project and I know they're trying to get a season two and, send all the um, good wishes to the theater gods or to the reality series gods that we get to do it again. Cause I would love to do it. Oh my so God. I want another season of that. Yes. I know. Absolutely. So write to, write to Disney plus and tell them you want it. All right. Um, so, so I, uh, I just have one burning question. I'm okay. dying to ask you. Is this the last question? Yeah. Before we go into our like sign off of things, but the earrings, what's the story? Oh, my stars. Yeah. So you always have these earrings. Well, you you know, it's a balance thing. Once I started wearing them, my hair got shorter and the glasses and the earrings, there was just kind of this balance thing. And my husband gave them to me. And I'll tell you, it was like 19 late eighties, 87, 86, maybe. Got them at this really cool store on Columbus. And now it's like, and then I did master class. And I'll never forget Maria Collis saying to the young soprano in act one, you must have a look. So <laughs> I thought, you know what? I think I have a look. I love I that. I think my look is my, you know, glasses, short hair, and my earrings, my stars. It's a and, good look. And it, thank you. And, you know, I just feel unbalanced without them. I try and I've actually in in pandemic time I I've worn some posts because the hanging earrings and the mask are really kind of annoying. Uh yeah. Um but honestly it's uh it's that's that's my look. Is so that still the same pair? It's the original one original and one replacement and I lost one and so I have one backup. I was going to say, you've got to have some understudies. Like No, I only course. have one backup now. So oh, I, can't, no. I can't lose both. But I, and I've tried other long earrings. And, you know, a lot of times people give me earrings as a gift because they say, they see me wearing these earrings and they think, ooh, I can get her funky earrings and she'll wear them. And it's like, mm, not so much. I just like these. So share, so this, really kind of, yeah. share this with all your friends and family so they know not to get you any more earrings. Yeah, no more earrings. I'll accept, you know, dark chocolate and um, licorice. That's my new <laughs> that's my new thing. Dark caramel, black caramel licorice is my new thing. I love it. So 
quick, really quick answers. Three last things. What is something that you've learned, whether it's baking, uh, French, uh, ukulele <laughs> over the past pandemic? Oh, I've been cooking. I mean, I am truly the queen of calling out for delivery. Um, and Tony and I have been really good. And I'm really, I mean, I grill. I don't really do anything fancy, but we, we've been cooking and eating in and not going out. So I would say that's like a big thing. I don't know how I'm going to maintain it if, if, you know, I get busy again. But um, I like it. It's, not, it's good and it's tasty, actually. Have you been binging any sort of Netflix or uh, any recommendations for foreign films or anything on All TV? All the British crime procedurals, every single, uh, and some of their wacky comedies. We just, I'm, I love this actor, Paul Ritter, who just passed away. And so we just watched Friday Night Dinner with Tamsin Gregg and Paul Ritter and Mark Heap. And it's wacky and hilarious. And, um, all of the all of the crime procedurals that take place in Shetland and in Ireland and in Wales and the UK. So we're every I could give you. I'll have to send you a list because it's everything um, with British actors that are fantastic. Did you um, see the series Broadchurch? Broadchurch. Well, Olivia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Olivia Coleman first came to my attention on Broadchurch, and now I've been watching other things, and she's popping up in all these other shows yeah. um, that she did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, um, yeah, there's a few actors that we just love, Amelia Bulworth and Sarah Lancashire and Gentleman Jack with Saran Jones and um, just all those English yummy shows. And finally, um, if you had a wish, just one wish that you would wish for the world or yourself or anything in general, what is the first thing that just pops into your head? Be kind. Kindness. Kindness. Simple. My mom taught me kindness. Be kind. Like, just everybody be kind to each other. Yep. That's what I hope. I mean, yep. it's, you know, it's takes a lot more than that but maybe that's a start if someone just treated other people they wanted how they wanted to be treated that's right you know so there well marcia thank well, this you this was for, fun yeah thank you for talking to us and taking the time uh we really appreciate it and my gosh i can't i know you you've got some projects that are in the works coming up when things kind of hopefully return to a new normal yeah every day is like here we're gonna do it on this day and we're gonna open here and then the next day okay what's your availability here and here and here and what if we shifted here and there and there but the good thing is i'll be back in your neck of the woods um hopefully because everything is you know we're hoping we're we're operating on all systems go that we'll be doing beauty and the beast at the only uh, goes into rehearsal in October. It's an exciting new production. It's not your sister's Beauty and the Beast. It's a whole new Beauty and the Beast. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for information on that. That's oh. exciting. Yes, yeah. we'll have to we'll have to meet up when you're here. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcia, and have Thank a you. great rest of your evening. And you tell, too. Love and to stay Tony. well and stay healthy and journey on in good health, peace, and love, and lots of hugs. 
Yes, lots of kindness. Yes. Okay. And love to Tony as well, please. Thank you so much. Yes, I'll tell him. Thank you. All right. Good night. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was a great, fascinating discussion with Marsha. We love you so much, Marsha. We're so happy you joined us. Thank you so much. And Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody just catch her in Encores on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't seen it, she does the Annie and the Ragtime episodes. But the whole thing is a joy, a delight. Um, so let's check back on these candles. First, I'm going to put these warning label stickers on the bottom of the candles. That What are the warnings? Burn within sight, keep away from flammable objects, keep away from children and pets. Burning instructions, trim wick to one quarter inch before lighting. So now we gotta trim our wick. One quarter inch is right about, would you say, here? It's probably a knuckle digit. Like here. Yep. That wick is trimmed, it's got a safety sticker. Let's do the other one. Sticker is on, and the wick is trimmed. All right, and let's light that. Okay, let me go grab a lighter. Hold on one second. It smells great. Yeah, what does it smell like? It smells like grass. Now, we love green grass candles. This one actually smells a little more like cut grass than the green grass. Not that there's a huge difference, but it smells kind of fresher. Lighting the candles right now uh, on this 12th anniversary of Ragtime Revival directed by Marsha Milcom Dodge. We never mentioned that she got a Tony nom for that, for directing that show on Broadway. So good on ya. Um, this is a... Uh, these candles are in honor of that anniversary and the sentiment of that show, which is still so important um, in our political climate and social climate right now. So these candles are lit and hopefully justice and peace. That day of peace, that day, of, you know, the lyrics are just so incredible to that show. Flaherty and Aaron's and we had such a good time talking to Marsha and we look forward to talking to all of you next week if you want to learn more about us our website is www.connorsmithmusicals.com and as we always say turn, turn your, your heart, heart into art good night everybody